Isn't that cool? Isn't it so cool to see the, the next generation grow? There's such joy uh, that comes from watching the next generation grow. Kids are quite a trip, aren't they? Um, I know, I was just thinking back about, it's been, you know, I think 10 years or so since my oldest twins went through this and we did this together. And um, brief story for you, we're obviously in the season of Lent. And so uh, at the start of Lent, we had asked the kids, hey, do, do, do any of you want to kind of give something up as we think about uh, moving towards Resurrection Sunday? I said, Dad's going to try to skip dessert, okay, because I like dessert a lot, and uh, I'm going to be reminded every meal that, um, okay, I need to remember to pray to God, and, and so my daughter Chloe, she's like, I'll do that, Dad, I'll do that too, you know, I'll, she loves dessert, she's like, I'm going to skip dessert for, for the next 40 days, so I and we said, okay, remember this, the point is to pray to God when that happens, okay, she says, yeah, okay, got it, so last week, we had some friends and neighbors over, and uh, they brought with them a dessert. And when I say dessert, I'm not talking about some cookies. I'm talking about dessert. Okay, this was a brownie with, on top of the brownie, there was crumbled um, uh, Thin Mint Girl Scout cookies. And then on top of that was a layer of fudge that had melted and like congealed. Okay, so you you, you look at that and you go, that's dessert. Okay, so they were serving it up around our table in the basement. And Chloe's sitting there and she runs upstairs saying, I got to go pray. I was cracking up. Like, well, she gets the point, you know. But I, I think we experience with our, with our kids, we experience uh, such intensity when it comes to our emotions. We get joy. Joy comes from our children so often or the next generation. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't, so you have children yet or, or maybe you don't have children. Maybe you have aunts or you're an aunt or an uncle or, or a grandma and grandpa. But, but children give us, the next generation give us increased intensity of emotions. And it's not just joy. For me, let me confess. Another in, emotion that is intensified w- with my children is called impatience. That one's intensified sometimes. But another emotion that I think sometimes is intensified that we don't often recognize is actually the emotion of lament. Lament. Because we are hurt and we are pain when we see the next generation suffering or in pain. Now... If, if you're visiting with us, you're kind of like, Troy, that's weird. We were in the middle of a series right now called Lamentations, or we're, we're going through the book of Lamentations in a series called Weep With Me. And this morning, as I was thinking through, what are we going to process through as parent-child dedication? You know what? I said, let's maybe take a time out from Lamentations, okay? Because uh, this might not fit very well for parent-child dedications if you've read the book of Lamentations. Anyway, so what I did, though, is I asked, I asked Kim Munninger, um, our children's pastor, I said, hey, can you pray about, has God put anything on, specifically on your heart that, that maybe I could speak from this morning, a scripture that would speak to you. And she prayed about that, wrestled through it, and actually came to a text that is not, it's not in Lamentations. But it's, the idea is not that far away from lament. Because despite the hopes and dreams we have for our children, despite the joys that we experience when we see kids babble together their first words or say amen out loud or, or ride their bike for the first time or, or get a win, despite all those things, Every parent experiences at some point a form of loss or the death of a dream when it comes to the next generation. Maybe, maybe it's when we see our children or our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews, maybe it's when we see them struggling to fit in. Maybe it's when we see them being bullied. Maybe it's when we see them um, really 
working hard but really struggling in school or on the opposite end of that spectrum. Maybe it's when we see them just in this uh, hamster wheel of trying to keep the 4.0 going and just being overwhelmed by it. Maybe it's, it's when we watch them battle through anxiety or depression. Maybe it's when we um, see them battle with body image or an addiction or self-harm. See, we have these ideas of what we want for our kids, but inevitably, in some fashion or form, we are likely to experience the death of some dreams when it comes to our children. And this morning, uh, I want to wrestle through this with you. I want to wrestle through the next generation in, in light of hardships and suffering. Okay? And I want to do this in, in three different points of view. I want to talk about the reality of suffering. I want to talk about our responsibility to the next generation in light of suffering, and then I want to talk about the redemption of suffering. So the reality of suffering, our responsibility within suffering, and the redemption of suffering. To do that, I'm going to leverage the text that Kim uh, shared with me. It's in Hebrews chapter 5. If you're here this morning, you're visiting, we have Bibles under the chairs in front of you. We encourage, this is the time where we all open our Bibles up and read uh, from God's Word together. So grab a Bible and open to page 850. I think that's, that's right. Um, in the Brown Bibles, or on your app, on your Bible app, you got to scroll down a ways. Hebrews is close to the end of, of the Scriptures. Now, Hebrews is a, a letter or a book that was written um, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what Hebrews is about is it's, it's, a, it's trying to show us the unity between the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the hinge point of, of Hebrews is a name. It's Jesus. The, the, the Hebrews is trying, to, this letter is trying to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of, the completion of the entire Old Testament or Hebrew Scriptures. He is at the center of it. It's what the whole thing is about. So we're going to read in chapter 5. We're just going to read a couple of verses here. But before we read verses 7 through 10, I want to just pray for us before we dive in. Gracious Father, we thank you for these words that we are about to read and I pray, as always, Lord, that more than anything that I say, that these words would speak to us. Convict us in our hearts by your word, Lord. Inspire us to the good news and empower us by your spirit through these things that we hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 5, verse 7 of Hebrews reads like this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. So I want to work through this with you in in these three points. And I want to start with the reality of suffering. I'm going to spend very little time on this one because I feel like it's the one that I want to make a case for. We are living in the midst of a world where there, the reality is that there is suffering. If you've been here for the Lamentation series, you heard us two weeks ago. We had a sister in Christ come up here and share about how one of her young daughters was assaulted in public by a stranger. Last week, we had a sister in Christ come up and share um, about an incurable diagnosis that she has been given. And she's not a child, okay, but her parents are in the room. Okay, so she's still a daughter to our family here. If you're here in the room, there's a pretty good chance that, that you are watching up close and personal the, the reality of suffering of someone in the next generation. And you're seeing it happen. And it's playing out. Here in Hebrews 5, 
Jesus identifies with this reality of suffering. Okay? In verse 7 it says that while he was here on earth, he prayed to the Father through tears and loud crying. And this is the, the image of him in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he is turned over, um, betrayed by one of his friends, arrested. He's going to be beaten, mocked, and then later the next day crucified. We know Jesus himself experienced suffering. And all the way back to even being rejected in his hometown, from people leaving him, from being scorned and being eventually condemned. Jesus experienced the reality of suffering. So you are probably in the room, you're like, I'm aware of the reality of suffering in the next generation. So that's my first point. That's it, that's it. I don't need to make a case for it, okay? There is. Number two, what do we do knowing that there's a reality of suffering in this world? What do we do? What's our responsibility to the next generation in light of the suffering that is experienced? See, I think sometimes people will try to make the case, here's what our responsibility is. Our responsibility is to protect and to remove the next generation from any form of hardship or suffering. And I don't think that's the case. I think sometimes what we want to do is we say, where is the bubble that I can put around the child so they will never experience any of this stuff? Give you a more of an adult version of this. This next slide. Now, tell me, does anyone know what this is, what's going on here? Does anyone know? I'm going to need you to shout this out if you know. What is it? It's a, it's a, it's a flow, right? Sensory deprivation, right? You've heard of this? Sensory de- deprivation? Has anyone in the room done this? Raise your hand if you've done this. Okay, you have done this. How, what was this like? It was interesting. It was interesting. It's totally foreign. You don't ever experience sensory deprivation. Thank you, by the way. Um, the, the, the goal of this sensory deprivation is to literally, and they have a picture here, so they have the lights on, but I believe it's usually lightless. Uh, the temperature is supposed to be the same as your body or so. Uh, it's salt water. You're floating in it. There's no smells. There's no sounds. It's you take your five senses and you nullify them completely. Okay? And, and there are studies that say that this is actually good for our minds. Because if you think about the frenetic pace in which we operate, the idea is that we need to take some time and slow down. Okay? And our brains are consistently just running and running and running and going and going and going. So something like this is meant to help. But what's interesting is that the studies show that sensory deprivation is only good for, for a certain period of time. In other words, if you... If you go with sensory deprivation for too long, you will actually experience the negative consequences of anxiety, hallucinations, and depression. Why? Because we weren't made to have our senses deprived in such a way for extended periods of time. And yet I think sometimes the reality is, when we think of the next generation, if we could just keep them from all this stuff, they won't get hurt. Like if you think about the sense of touch, the sense of touch has been given to us. And and what's amazing about touch is that we can experience extreme pleasure through touch. But we can also experience massive pain. You know, I think about children who who don't necessarily, they're not able, little babies don't know necessarily what touch even is until you, uh, I think, take them to get their immunizations. And all of a sudden they're just like this. They're like, this day is amazing. Oh my goodness. I love you, mom. This is amazing. What, wait, just something, what, what just happened? Okay, they just got shot. Just got a shot. It's crazy. You see them lose their mind, right? Because it hurts. You wonder if they don't lose their mind, something's wrong with them, maybe. Like, what just happened? You have been given ears. 
And with these ears we've been given, we can hear symphonies. We can hear amazing sounds. You go out in nature and hear the birds and you hear creation. It's amazing. But with our ears we can also hear cuts, insults, degrading comments, curses, these kinds of things as well. But I think for us, to, what we do sometimes, we try to protect the next generation so, so far that we've gone to extreme lengths to do that. We actually, we actually deprive them of, of some things that are probably good for us. Uh, this next slide, we find Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson. He says, suffering is a matter of pain, and pain is a sign of a sentient system. Sentient is something able to perceive or feel, so not a rock. Okay? A sentient system in disequilibrium. But I think in, in, in our minds we think what we should do with the next generation is make sure there's never disequilibrium. We should make sure they're always safe, always comfortable, never harmed, never put outside of their what I'll call a comfort zone because that's what disequilibrium is, is outside of their comfort zone. But even in the secular world, this is seen as not necessarily a good thing. Nassim Taleb, in his best-selling secular book, Anti-Fragile, he makes the case that there are a whole host of problems with this approach where we try to remove natural stressors, in other words, hardships, or sufferings and and protect ourselves from them in all ways. And he gives chapter after chapter of examples. One of them, uh, the simplest ones that he gives to some extent around our health relative to uh, fasting. Like that's depriving ourselves of food. We're hungry, but it actually is healthy for us to do that in a rhythm. Exercise, lifting weights, running, these kinds of things break our muscles down, tear them to some extent, but then rebuild them and cause us to grow. So we may think that our responsibility is to protect the next generation, but I don't think that's the case. I think one of our first responsibilities is what we see here in Hebrews chapter 5 that the father shows to his son, and that is that he has ears to hear. When it comes to suffering in the next generation, I think one of our first responsibilities is to create a place where, we, where the children can be heard. Okay, notice in verse 7, Jesus cried out to God the Father and he was heard. Perhaps we should spend a little less time trying to solve all of our kids' problems for them and instead walk beside them and listen to them in the midst of the reality of their suffering. I had a funny story uh, Three or so years ago, I think it was four years ago, our youngest son, Ephraim, he had an umbilical hernia. And we had to get this thing operated on. We just were waiting for him to get a little bit older. So we we went to the hospital down at uh, Freighter Hospital, Children's Hospital, and he was going to go in for surgery. Well, this is one they had to put him under for, and so he was given an an anesthetic, right? And um, Steph and I were in the room with him, and I don't know if you've ever seen your kids on anesthetics, but it's a riot. Okay, I was like, hey, Ephraim, can you say the alphabet? He's like... A, B, C, you know, he's just, you know, so he's doing this thing and he's about ready to go and they get him on this journey. They take him down out of the room they, and I, and we hear him as we're, we're praying. For, we prayed for him. We told him we're here for him. We're, you know, we're, we want to be with him in this, but they had to eventually take him out of the room, out of our control. And I hear him around the corner. Here's what he says. He's laying in this gurney. He's like four years old. He goes, I got to get out of here. I mean, you take the anesthetic away, he is losing his mind, right? He knows. He's still mindful enough to know what's going to happen here is not good. And yet we had to let him go out of the room and go down the hall to experience some of that. But we wanted to be in that room with him ahead of time. We wanted to be right there when he was uh, out of it, right? We wanted to know him and know we were there as close as we could with him through it. Jesus knew he had a voice and that he was heard by his father. Can our children say the same about us? 
Do we create an environment that allows for our children to know that they're heard and that we're with them in the midst of their suffering? Because if we do, and if that's the case, then we're reflecting a bit of God to them. Because God doesn't always change our circumstances or remove our pain or suffering because there's, there's actually bigger things going on that we can't always see how they all weave together. But what he does do is he goes to great lengths to make it very clear that he hears us and he is with us in the midst of that suffering. This is one of our responsibilities to the next generation is to be able to have them be heard and know that we're with them. Another responsibility is that we would help them learn obedience through suffering. Here's what it says in the text. Although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, if, if you are engaged at all with the next generation, there is, there is things that we want to teach them. But let's be honest, suffering is probably not on the itinerary. It's not part of the curriculum. Hey, we're going to teach you suffering today, all right? Like that's not the approach that we take. But it says here that Jesus somehow learns obedience through suffering. This is something that kind of blew my mind as I'm reading through this text, reminded of what is said here. How does Jesus learn anything? Because he's Jesus. Even, even Muslims believe that he is sinless and without sin, let alone that he learned obedience. Like if there's anything that Jesus nailed, it was obedience. Okay? And yet we find here that Jesus somehow learns obedience. Can you help me figure this out? How does it, what does it say in the text that helps him learn obedience? What's the word? I want you to look. What's the word that helps him learn obedience? It's through what? Through suffering. It's through suffering. Dr. George Guthrie says this next slide, what we find. That he, Jesus, learned obedience means that the son said yes to the father's will in an extreme situation that he had not yet encountered. He said yes in an extreme situation he had not yet encountered. And one that would eventually, obviously, involve suffering. I think the tension is is that we don't want our kids to experience extreme situations that involve suffering. Come on, Troy. Like, are, are you telling me that I should go look for opportunities for my children to encounter this stuff? That's not what I'm saying. Please hear me. But what I am saying is that we, we may be missing something if their comfort and contentment and entertainment are our number one priorities. We're missing something there. What if suffering and hardship in the, ne- in, the, in the lives of the next generation actually create opportunities for us to teach them about the Father, to teach them obedience to the Father? What if instead of saying to them, hey, you do whatever, is, is whatever makes you feel good, whatever you want to do, what if instead we said, hey, what, we could reframe that and say, what? What would it look like for you to do what God is calling you to do, to obey Him in this, even if it means hard things, even if it's not the easy things, the more difficult road? I'll give you a silly example of this. We have some friends who are trying to increasingly live on mission here as part of our family, and um, this last Christmas they did something absolutely insane. They, they didn't buy their kids Christmas presents. <gasps> you okay? You want to talk about suffering. Hardship. Here's what they did. They went to their kids and they said, Hey, what we want to do is instead of giving you gifts, we want to take that money we'd normally use for gifts and we want to, to spend that in God's kingdom and some things He's doing specifically globally. It's a, it's a simple example. But our responsibility to the next generation is not their comfort. 
It's, it's to help shape and form their character as we point them to Jesus. And this is often done through suffering. Perhaps we should ask the question, what do we rob our children of when we try to take away all their pains and struggles? Which, by the way, you cannot do. You will not be able to do that. A friend of mine this week who has experienced loss in her life even early on, she said, I can see the times in my life where I begged God to take something away from me. But in the begging, I was, I was drawn to him and depended on him and learned about him in ways I never would have if he took it away. This is what Paul writes in one of his letters to the Corinthian church as well. Now, one of the things specifically that we take away, I want to walk through this with you, is something called, my friend Tom Tunnicliffe calls turbo confidence. Now, Tom Tunnicliffe, is, uh, he, he wrote a book called Igniting Future, How to Build People of High Impact. And that's what we want for the generation, right? The next generation, we want them to be people of high impact, right? Can I get an Amen. Okay, so we want that. And what Tom did was his, really his, his doctoral thesis. He put it together. He went, he went around and interviewed uh, people who were in leadership at a high level throughout the country, a bunch of interviews. And what he was trying to do is ask a bunch of questions to, to delineate, is there common denominators between these leaders that we can isolate and say, these seem to be things that these leaders have experienced. And what he came back with was four what he calls confidences that he sees being built into leaders And I want to walk through each of them. One of them I think we deprive our children in the next generation from. But let me start with this one. The first one is called primitive confidence. Now, primitive confidence comes from uh, discovering a basic competency where you say, uh, you you go, hey, I I realize I'm actually pretty good at this thing. And it could be anything. But there's probably something in all of your lives where you realize, you're like, I'm actually decent at this. That's called primitive, sorry, primitive confidence. Okay? Primitive confidence. And as, as parents, as teachers, as coaches, as aunts, uncles, grandparents, one of our jobs is to help the next generation. One of our responsibilities is to help the next generation identify these things. Okay? Primitive confidence. Second, vicarious confidence. Vicarious confidence is, is not something you self-discover. Vicarious confidence is something that is spoken to you. It's what you just saw this morning where Chris and Dan spoke words of life over their sons, okay? And, and actually, the more you respect an individual, the greater the impact their, vicar- their confidence is. So if you hold someone up in high esteem and they come to you and say, you are good at this or you are whatever, you will take that with a huge uh, sort of affirmation in your heart. That's vicarious confidence. Third confidence is called command confidence. And command confidence is this idea of where you are placed in a leadership role or where some weight or responsibility is put upon your shoulders. And I'm currently reading a book with my twins, my 10-year-old twins. It's, it's called Do Hard Things, A Teenage Rebellion Against Low Expectations. And two teenagers, teenagers actually wrote the book, Brett and Alex Harris. And in this book, their basic premise is to say, we have... Even less than 100 years ago, we didn't even have something called teenagers. Children went from children to adults. But what's happened is that as a culture, we have said to to youth, we've said, we expect nothing from you. We expect nothing from you from the ages of who knows what, maybe 8 until 30 now. Maybe it's 50. I don't know. So, but, But no. So we expect nothing of you. And so they live up to those expectations. And their point is to say, no, we rebel against that. We, they say we have, the, we have more energy, we have more uh, passion and creativity, creativity and time right now in our lives. Give us responsibility. 
is really what's being said in the back of their minds. And David Sizdek and our youth uh, leadership team here is working really hard to do this with our youth. To say, you can lead. We want you to lead. This is called command confidence. Now, the fourth confidence, though, is called uh, turbo confidence. And when Tom and I first sat down, he hadn't even finished his book yet. He was explaining this to me, and it was a little different than the other three. And I was like, does this really fit in here? And here's what it is. Command confidence is a confidence that is forged over a short and often intense period of time when life itself presses in on you to shape your character. And I'm gonna, you know what I would call that? Suffering. That's what turbo confidence is. It is hardship and it is suffering. He cites 2 Corinthians chapter 1 as an example of this in this next slide. Here's what we find. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we have suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. I think as, as, as parents, when we look at the next generation or as grandparents or whatever, I think we're cool with the first three confidences. We're like, yeah, primitive, yep, want to do that, vicarious, yep, command, that makes sense. This last one, though, but we know that the perfect father did not deprive his own son of all four of those. You see, Jesus was given primitive confidence when he was at the temple. He was 12 years old. He was speaking to all the teachers of the law, and they were amazed by his wisdom, primitive confidence. Jesus was baptized. The Heavenly Father comes out of, there's a voice that comes from heaven. It says, this is my son whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. That is vicarious confidence. And then we hear Jesus tell his disciples, hey guys, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's command confidence if there ever was. Okay? And yet God the Father did not take away this fourth confidence either. Because on the cross, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father did not deprive his son from experiencing this kind of confidence. And so we know there's a reality to suffering. I think now we can see some of the responsibilities we have around suffering. But lastly, I want to close with the idea that suffering can be redeemed. Let me say this. Perhaps the suffering that the kids in your life are going through is not necessarily the death of the dream that you think it is. Perhaps the suffering they're going through can be redeemed. Because this is what happened apparently with Jesus. In verse 9 it says, Having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. In other words, there was a redemption. If ever there was a redemption of suffering, it is on the cross. Now, in the context of Hebrews, what the book of Hebrews has to do is it has to lay a little bit out of the Old Testament out to go, okay, let me show you something better. Here's the thing. In the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system where animals were sacrificed. If you sinned against me or I sinned against you, there would have to be something, because we're both sinning against God when that's the case. We'd have to go to a, a priest in the tabernacle or in the temple. We'd have to have an animal sacrifice because something would have to pay. Justice would have to be done to make that right. Now, last time I checked, I'm not sure I've seen any of you ever sacrificing animals to, to cover over your sins and that kind of thing. Can you imagine driving home and pulling in your garage, you see your neighbor in the back, like get a goat like this? I mean, like, that'd be strange, right? So that is very far from what we remove from what we experience. But let me say this. We don't sacrifice animals, animals but we still do things. 
We still do things to try to make things right. Uh, one example of what we do is that we actually beat ourselves up. We know we've done something wrong, and so what we'll do is we'll go, I'll, I'll, I'll make this right, I'll just beat myself up. Okay? I'll make myself feel shame, I'll just say, oh yeah, I'm horrible. You know, we do that. That's one of the things we do. Another thing that we do is we relativize. We say, okay, I'm not going to beat myself up, but you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to, have you seen that person over there? They are really horrible. I mean, I know I've done stuff and I feel bad about that, but like, look at that person. So we relativize. We point the finger in a different direction. Well, the other thing that we do is we try to balance things out. Like, okay, I've done some bad things over here. I got to do some good stuff over here. I got to donate something or my time or money or whatever. That'll offset that. Here's the thing. The point of the book of Hebrews is to say there's something better. See, the sacrificial system didn't work because you'd have to keep doing it over and over and over and over again until Jesus Christ came. You don't have to do that anymore. He's the ultimate sacrifice. And so you say, well, Troy, we don't offer sacrifices. Yeah, but you still do. You still beat yourself up. You still relativize. And you still um, relativize. What was the third thing I said? Uh, Something else that you do. Yeah, that justify it. Yeah, all those things. We try to do those. We still beat ourselves up. But you know what we do when we do that? It doesn't work. You know, oh yeah, it's generous. Be good. We try to be generous. How good is good enough? Is it really offset the scale? Have we done enough? Because we run into it, we start pointing at that person over there, but then this person over here comes over and they're actually really better than us. They're like way more moral. And we're like, oh, I don't know. I'm not I'm better than that person, but ooh, these people make me feel guilty. And so it doesn't work. Just like the sacrificial system, it doesn't work. And you know what happens? Suffering happens in that because we feel more guilt, more shame. It doesn't go away just like it didn't long term with the animals either. But what if these things, even these things, even shame and guilt and suffering are meant to point us to God? What what if these are meant to point us to Jesus that they can be redeemed? You know how these things can be redeemed? Because when we are in that place, we can be reminded that we have the deep need of a Savior. We are in need of a Savior. We've tried to save ourselves from being good, relativizing, or these other things. It just doesn't work. If our kids never experience some of these things either, will they find themselves ever in need of a Savior? Or will they think they've got it all figured out on their own, they're all fine? See, Jesus here, the author tells us, is not a source of salvation. He's not one of many sources of salvation. He is the. He is the source of salvation for those who not only believe in him, but obey him. Now, I want to read a quote from Dr. David Gooding, because he uses the reference of Moses in the Old Testament. And it looks like this. He says, No salvation was offered to Israel that did not require them to commit themselves unconditionally to Moses' captaincy right from the start. Let me explain why I put that up there. See, in the Hebrew scriptures, there's a story of Moses. You've heard of Moses before. He's trying to bring the people out of slavery in Egypt. Now imagine this. They had to go under the blood of the lamb on a doorpost, and then they were saved from the, the, the angel of death coming and killing their firstborn. There was that. But imagine this. Imagine that in Egypt, Moses said, Hey, God told me we're getting out of here. So I need you to stay in your house tonight, put blood over it, and then tomorrow we're leaving. And we're going to be rescued out of here. I'm going to lead you out of here. And everyone said, we believe you. And so they went inside. And the next day when he went out and said, hey, we're going to go out, out of Egypt, everyone said, we believe you. And he said, no, no, come on, we're going. We're going to go out of Egypt right now. Follow me. They're like, we believe you. Hey, no, no, God is rescuing us. We believe you. 
There was no salvation offered that did not require them to commit themselves unconditionally to his captains. He had to follow. He had to follow them out of Egypt. You know what they went through? They went through Red Sea, desert, wilderness. And so I think this causes us to beg the question of, are we willing to obey? You see, Moses, the, the point of Moses is the same point of the sacrificial system. The point of Moses is that there was going to be another captain who would come along who would bring his people out of slavery, not physical slavery, but spiritual slavery. There was going to be another captain who was going to come along and not just be pointing to the blood of the lamb on the door, but be the blood of the lamb because he is the lamb. His name is Jesus. So here's the question. Who is the captain? Who is the captain of your life? And to whom are you pointing the next generation as their captain? Because there's only one who's worthy of having his captain in our lives, one beyond ourselves. If we can do this, our suffering can be redeemed in and through this. Because when Jesus was on the cross, God was not forsaking him. He was redeeming his suffering. And Tim Keller puts it this way. The darkness of death swallowed Jesus. He entered into it. But then he blew a hole out the back of it. See, Jesus can blow a hole out the back of whatever suffering that you or the next generation are going through. May we see and help the next generation see that suffering can be redeemed because of the hope that's held out in in and through the one who suffered for that redemption. Suffering's real, and we have a responsibility to the next generation to tell them that it can be redeemed in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you don't just talk about this, that you don't just say, I'm going to make it all right, but you sent your son, that you don't stay at a distance, you come, that you foreshadowed it, you showed it through Moses, you showed it through the sacrificial system, you showed it through generations and generations, that there would be one who would come. His name is Jesus. We pray that generation upon generation, from from our perspective, that we would do what we can to help people understand the good news that the suffering that we experience, although it's a reality, can be redeemed in and through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. And all God's people said,